you'd please open in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, we are looking this morning at Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Uh, We're continuing our morning sermon series through the Gospel of Mark, and today we come to chapter 11. Now, I've been saying for the last few weeks that really the turning point in the Gospel of Mark is chapter 8, verse 27 through 30, where you get that great confession from Peter uh, that Jesus is the Christ. And ever since that point, all the way to the end of chapter 10, Jesus and his disciples are making a fast track toward Jerusalem. And then last week, recall, we saw that Jesus really ended that journey where he is coming now to the gates of Jerusalem. He is going to enter into Jerusalem. And we saw with his encounter with blind Bartimaeus that Jesus really is presented as he enters into Jerusalem after that long journey since Peter's great confession that he enters in as a merciful king. But here this morning, we will see that Jesus, riding on a donkey, enters in as a humble king as well. So with that introduction out of the way, let us give attention now to the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, And immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer? Our Father in heaven, we come to a passage that many of us are familiar with. And as is the case so often, Lord, we tend to turn our ears off when we come to passages that we are so familiar with. I do pray, Father, that that would not be the case here this morning, but that you would open our ears and our eyes to see our humble king afresh, even in this passage that we know so well. Be near, we pray, by your spirit and help us to see and to hear the Lord of glory, our humble king, Jesus Christ, this day. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. A popular way for conquering generals and emperors within the uh, Roman Empire to be celebrated and praised was through a common practice that was called triumphs. A Roman triumph was a grand victory celebration parade held in the city of Rome. 
for a military commander who had won an important victory on the battlefield against one of the enemies of the Roman Empire. Roman triumphs were really quite the spectacle. They would be celebrated over long periods of time. There would be musicians, torchbearers, and flag wavers, and exotic flowers, and even actors at times that would play out the battle that was won in order to commemorate that victory of the Roman commander or Roman emperor. Sometimes there would be statues and large structures made specifically for the triumphal entry of the Roman emperor. For example, Julius Caesar had a whole forum built in his honor, and Pompey had a grand theater built in honor for him during his triumph. The conquering king or general would be garbed in royal purple robes, and he would ride into Rome almost as a godlike figure in a chariot that would be carried by four horses. And he wore a laurel crown and carried a laurel branch in his right hand. These Roman triumphs were a spectacle that everyone within the city would come out to be a part of. It was lavish, and it was quite an impressive welcome of a conquering general, of a conquering king. Well, here in our passage, we see the triumphal entry of a conquering king. Mark, for the last 10 chapters, has really depicted Jesus as just that, a conquering king. The very first words of Jesus in Mark's gospel are found in chapter 1, verse 13, where Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And right after those very first words of Jesus, we see Jesus, Jesus conquering unclean evil spirits. His first, uh, his first miracle in chapter 1 will cause the people to say, Who is this man that even the evil spirits are subject to him? He heals many from diseases that are the result of a fallen world, healing lepers, paralytics, blind men, and even raising the dead. All of this demonstrating what Jesus says so clearly and plainly in chapter 3, verse 27, that the strong man Satan has been bound in order that Christ the King might do his conquering work. So here is Jesus. He is entering in as a conquering king. He is entering into Jerusalem, his city, David's city, as a conquering king, but not one who conquers foreign enemies, much like the Roman generals in the time of the Roman Empire, but one who conquers sin and death itself. And he is entering Jerusalem in order to give that once and final decisive blow to sin and death at the cross in Calvary. Yet ironically, This King Jesus is not welcomed by well-planned, lavish pageantry. Rather, the people improvise on the spot and spread their cloaks on the ground. The celebration isn't long and drawn out. Rather, it is short-lived, as verse 11 seems to indicate to us. It seems the crowds have dispersed, and all Jesus is left with is the twelve. And he's not riding on a chariot carried by four horses, 
Rather, rather the greatest conqueror and the greatest king this world has ever known rides in on a dumb donkey. All of this adds up to show us the humble conditions of Christ's triumphal entry. Last week, as I have already mentioned, we saw Jesus in his entry into Jerusalem as the merciful king, as he heals blind Bartimaeus who cries out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Today we see Jesus entering into his city, his capital city, Jerusalem, as the humble king. So really what I want us to see this morning is just two things. First, the humble king's preparation for Jerusalem, verse 1 through 6. And then second, the humble king's entry into Jerusalem, verse 7 through 11. First, the humble king's preparations for Jerusalem, verse 1 through 6. Verse 1, Jesus approaches Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Now, the Mount of Olives rose a bit over 2,600 feet and stretched from north to south on the east side of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives plays really a prominent role in the Old Testament, specifically Old Testament prophecies as the place where God's future glory will be revealed. For example, Zechariah 14 and Ezekiel 43 will mention the Mount of Olives as that place where Messiah's glory will be revealed. And in fact, in chapter 13, in a few weeks, we are going to see Jesus on the Mount of Olives with his disciples giving prophecy of the end of the age. So we see him fulfilling those prophecies concerning the Mount of Olives, but we will see that later on more specifically in chapter 13. Bethany is the place where Jesus will lodge for the remainder of his time on earth. It is a city to the east of Jerusalem, right outside the city gates, and it is the town where Martha and Mary and their brother Lazarus, who Jesus raises from the dead in John 11, live. And it is more than likely that that is where Jesus lodged in Bethany as he was awaiting the day where he would die on the cross for the sins of the world. Verse 22 through 3, Jesus directs the disciples to go into the village and find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. If anyone gives them trouble, they are to say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. In other words, if a Jewish onlooker walking down the street sees these disciples taking a colt that is not theirs, they are to tell them that the Lord is in need of it, and he will bring it. they will bring it back to the rightful owner. Verse 4 through 6, Mark really shows a complement of verse 2 through 3. Notice absolutely everything takes place, as Jesus had said in verse 2 through 3. So verse 4 through 6, everything takes place as Jesus described in verse 2 through 3. Now, either Jesus is using his powers as a prophet and and God who knows the future, who knows that this colt that is being tied, uh, will uh, all of this will happen in the way he says. But more than likely, this is something he has pre-planned with the individual, the owner of this colt. Uh, perhaps the owner of this colt is Uh, going into Jerusalem with Jesus, and they have planned out uh, this colt to be uh, sat upon by Jesus as he enters into Jerusalem. But either way, Mark does seem to indicate, whether it's through uh, a supernatural prophecy or not, everything took place 
in the way Jesus had said in verse 2 through 3. Now, I want us to just consider three things about this section here uh, for verses 1 through 6. Three things to consider here. First, Mark makes a point to let us, the reader, know that this colt must be untied. He's emphasizing that word and that understanding of the colt being untied. Verse 2, you will find a colt tied. Untie it. Verse 4, they found a colt tied and they untied it. Verse 5, what are you doing untying the colt? Mark seems to be indicating, emphasizing this reality of the colt being tied and then untied. Now, this emphasis of tying and untying from Mark is most likely due to what we read in the first book of the Bible in Genesis 49, verse 10 through 12. Genesis 49, verse 10 through 12. In Genesis 49, you get the blessings of Jacob on his sons, and essentially what he is doing is he is giving the blessings upon the 12 tribes of Israel whom his sons represent. And many of those blessings really take on sort of a prophetic role. There's prophecy within those blessings that Jacob gives uh, to his sons. And in verse 8 through 12, we see the blessings on the tribe of Judah. And in verse 10 of Genesis 49, Jacob says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Judah is the tribe where the king of Israel is going to come from. That language of scepter is royal language. And notice what it is that Jacob says. That scepter will never leave Judah. In other words, the king that comes from the tribe of Judah will bring in an everlasting kingdom. And within the same breath of that prophecy and blessing, you have this idea of a uh, donkey that is being bound So here is King Jesus of the tribe of Judah coming and symbolically untying a colt that has been bound, showing that the promise of Jacob to the tribe of Judah is being fulfilled in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ, the man of the tribe of Judah, unbinding this donkey that has been bound and tied. And Mark seems to emphasize, seems to want us, the reader, to be looking at that. So we see it as a fulfillment of the fact that the everlasting kingdom, the everlasting king will come from the tribe of Judah. Second, Mark makes reference to the fact that the donkey has not been sat on. He makes reference to the fact that the donkey has not been sat on. Now, throughout the Old Testament, when an animal is to be used for sacred use, the animal is not to have been sat upon previously. We see this in places throughout the Old Testament, especially if a heifer is going to be used for sacrifice. That heifer was not to be rode upon or have a, have a yoke that was upon it. It is to be an animal set apart specifically for the sacred use of the Lord. Notice what Jesus has his disciples say to anyone who questions them. The Lord has need of it. The Lord has need of it. 
Now, what's interesting about this here is that throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has not designated himself or named himself the Lord, the Greek word kyrios there. And for any Jewish man who is stopping these disciples who are untying this colt and hear the words that the Lord kyrios is in need of it, they would immediately think the Lord God, Yahweh of the Old Testament. So in Jesus needing this unblemished colt, the Lord God, Yahweh, is in need of this unblemished coat. As Jesus is seated on this unblemished colt, the Lord God himself is seated on this unblemished colt. For Christ is not only the son of David, as we saw last week with blind Bartimaeus, He is also the Son of God, God's Son, David's Son, seated on this colt. It must not be sat upon. It is sacred. The Lord God himself will be seated upon it. Third and finally, this is a fulfillment of the prophecy we read of earlier in Zechariah 9, verse Verse 9. Now, while Mark doesn't specifically say that, he doesn't specifically lay out that this is the fulfillment of the prophecy we find in Zechariah 9, Matthew, in his account of this event, will specifically refer to Zechariah 9, verse 9. Matthew 21, verse 4 through 5, Matthew says, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of the beast of burden. So Matthew explicitly states in his account of this same event that this is a direct fulfillment of the coming of the king into Mount Zion, into his city, into Jerusalem, to bring salvation to Israel. And notice it directly ties the riding on a donkey to his humility, to his humility. In other words, Jesus in no way is skirting the Hebrew scriptures in order to fulfill the Hebrew scriptures in his way. He is doing everything in concert with what the Hebrew scriptures have already written. Zechariah 9.9 makes clear that Messiah will come on a donkey and that will specifically highlight that he comes humbly. He comes with humility. However, what's interesting to note that within ancient Judaism and within the ancient tribes around Jesus' day, the rabbis were rather embarrassed by Zechariah 9 verse 9 and the fact that their Messiah, their king, would be coming on a donkey. So the way they explained it away is it would often be considered a symbol of the preparedness for Israel for their Messiah. If Israel was prepared for Messiah to come, if they were living holy and righteous lives, then Jesus would not come in fulfillment of Zechariah 9, riding on a donkey. He would rather come in fulfillment of Daniel 7, riding on the clouds of heaven, which we will see actually in Mark chapter 13. So if Israel was prepared for their Messiah, he would come riding on the clouds of heaven. But if Israel was not prepared for their Messiah, he would ride in on a dumb donkey. 
The donkey sort of symbolizing the people of Israel at the time of Messiah's coming. So what do we see from this ancient tradition within the rabbinic school of Jesus's days? It is that the Jews of Jesus's days wanted something akin to a Roman triumph. And if the Messiah's entry into Jerusalem wasn't akin to Caesar's entry into Rome, then Israel wasn't prepared for their Messiah. But the reality is, is that Israel and her leaders were not prepared for their Messiah because they were not prepared for a donkey-riding Messiah. They were not prepared for a humble king. So they saw Jesus and the Messiah in the Old Testament through the lens of their current day. And those things that embarrassed them, they skirted around, they explained away because they wanted their Messiah to come in a way that would fit the glory of their day. I wonder how often we do that today in our own day. How often do we distort Jesus try to fit him within the culture of our day so that he will fit right in with what is being said in our culture and what is being popular. It's something we've seen for over the last 200 years, really, in in scholarship, biblical scholarship and critical scholarship, what has often been seen as an offense to the Bible. Higher critical scholars will actually say they are saving Christianity by stripping it of its supernatural elements in order to make Jesus fit with our scientific age and our naturalistic world. We too, very much like the days of Jesus's days with the Jews, are guilty of distorting Jesus to fit into our preconceived notions based on what our culture is saying. And here is a lesson for us that we must always be willing and ready to be surprised by who Jesus is and who he reveals himself to be in his word. So we see the humble king's preparation for his city, the humble king's preparation for Jerusalem. Second and finally, we see the humble king's entry into Jerusalem. The humble king's entry into Jerusalem. Verse uh, 7 through 11. Now, verse 7 through 8, we are told that the disciples throw their cloaks on the colt uh, to serve as their king's saddle, and that the people then throw their cloaks on the road. Now, this, for any uh, faithful reader of the Jewish scriptures, this would remind them of 2 Kings chapter 9 verse 12 through 13, where you have uh, a royal tribute to King Jehu. Uh, King Jehu, after he is anointed king, we are told in 2 Kings 9, every man in haste took his garment and put it under Jehu on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed Jehu as king. So within the Jewish scriptures, within the Hebrew scriptures themselves, there would have been significance with these cloaks being spread on the road. There is royal significance within the Old Testament, symbolic significance pointing to the fact that here is Jesus being being basically commemorated and lifted up as a king 
royal significance with the cloak being spread upon the road. Verse 9 through 10, we get the shouts of the people. Verse 9 is really a quotation from Psalm 118, verse 26. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, Psalm 118 is part of what we call the Hillel Psalms. Uh, Psalm 118 is what we call the Hillel Psalms. Now, the Hillel Psalms are Psalms 113 through 118. Hillel simply means praise. So Psalms 113 through 118 are really just praise songs for the Hebrews. And they were sung by Israel during the great Jewish festivals. And recall what we mentioned last week, that there is this great crowd following Jesus on the road to Jerusalem because the Passover festival is fast approaching. So here what you have is people singing Psalm 118, which would be, common for them to do during the Passover festival. It was a Hillel psalm, singing one of the psalms that was common to sing during the Passover feast. Verse 10, we read, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, the word Hosanna simply means save us. It simply means save us. So the Jewish people are saying here that the son of David, the great Davidic king, has come, and through this king, God brings salvation from heaven. From on high, this king will bring the salvation that God has promised to his Jewish people of old. Now we have to pause for a moment, and we have to say that that is some very, very good theology. That is very good theology. All of that, everything that these Jewish people are saying is absolutely true. And not only is it true, it is very sound theology and understanding of Jesus and who he is. Things that we would claim to this very day. As we saw last week with blind Bartimaeus, he shouts out, Son of David, have mercy on me. And as claiming him as the Davidic king, his faith heals him. Jesus showing through the healing of blind Bartimaeus, giving him sight that what he was uttering was in fact true, that Jesus is the Davidic king. So all this is true, certainly. Jesus is the one who fulfills 2 Samuel 7, which we read from last week, that promised to David that his offspring would bring an everlasting kingdom. And God from heaven brings that salvation to his people through the Davidic king. So we have to ask ourselves, why? Why then? Will these people who are claiming this good theology and proclaiming Jesus to be who he truly is, why at the moment he brings that salvation from on high at the cross does this crowd disperse? Does this crowd leave and abandon Jesus? Well, I think there are two things to consider in this passage that will show us that really their understanding of Jesus as the Davidic king is much different than Jesus' own understanding himself. First, the use of palm branches, the use of these leafy branches that uh, the Jews are waving in the air. Now, the use of palm branches during the time of Jesus had become associated with really Jewish pride and Jewish nationalism at the time of Jesus' coming. They were connected with prominent Jewish military 
victories. For example, about 200 years earlier, you had a famous uh, revolt known as the Maccabean Revolt. The Maccabean Revolt was basically a Jewish priest led by a man named Judas Maccabeus who led this military revolt against what was known as the Seleucid Empire. And this revolt essentially brought in a period of peace for the Israelite nation. It brought in a period of prosperity, and they were really semi-autonomous with no overarching authority. And they had this sort of independent kingdom of sorts due to these military victories led by this man, Judas Maccabeus. And so oftentimes when these conquering priests or conquering military rulers would enter back into Jerusalem, what was common for them to do is take palms and wave them in the air in celebration of these military campaigns that were won for the Jewish people. And so it was custom for these military victories. It was a practice that was very much tied to political overthrow and to military, strong military victory. And so here you have a symbolic action taking place that would seem to indicate that the people are expecting military victory over the Romans. In fact, you have Jewish documents around at the time where many Jewish thinkers were thinking that the Messiah might be a reincarnation of Judas Maccabeus, and he would bring in a political kingdom through the same means that Maccabeus and his brothers brought in during the Maccabean revolt. So the presence of these palm branches seems to indicate that the people are expecting something akin to the Maccabean revolt that took place nearly 200 years earlier. The second thing to consider is the way this passage ends. Notice the way this passage ends. Jesus goes into the temple and looked around at everything. Now, this is stark foreshadowing of what we are going to see in the coming weeks as Jesus enters the temple and he cleanses the temple, essentially calling the temple impure and purifying the temple. And then he will ultimately give a prediction of the temple's destruction, especially in Mark chapter 13. So here, as we see Jesus entering into Jerusalem, his first action is not to gather arms and break the yoke of the Roman army and the Roman emperor. His first action is to bring judgment upon Israel in order to break the yoke of the leaders and the false worship within Israel their own walls. We have seen it time and time again throughout this gospel with both the disciples and the Jewish people throughout Mark. And here again, we see the lesson that man's primary problem is not physical and political. Man's primary problem is spiritual. Israel's problem is not that they are under the yoke of Rome. It is that they are under the yoke of sin. They are under false shepherds who are leading them into false worship. And Jesus' first action as he enters into his city is to cleanse Israel of its false shepherds, of its false worship. I spoke recently to a friend and a mentor of mine and really a friend of this church who, who said to me, you know, Mason, too many Christians today gain their perspective on culture more from what cable news says and from what the Bible says. 
meaning the world is really seen through a political lens rather than a spiritual lens, which means many Christians today are falling into the same trap that the Jews of Jesus' day fell into. The Jewish people were so bent in on their political condition, they failed to check their spiritual condition within their own walls. So also today, as Christians, we are bent in on our political condition and fail to check the spiritual condition that resides in our own walls. I spoke to someone in this church on Wednesday night who who said simply, you know, it's amazing to see what passes as churches today. It's true. It is amazing. I wonder if Christ were to return today, where would he go first? Would he go to the atheists? Would he go to the Darwinian evolutionists? Would he go to the false religions? Or would he go here into his church to scope out its condition? I think the testimony of Genesis to Revelation and the whole counsel of God teaches us the latter, that he is going to go to his people, that he will hold accountable for being a faithful witness to him and to his lordship, and to his glory. Jesus says to the church in Sardis in Revelation 3, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I come against you. Brothers and sisters, our primary concern is to be for the spiritual welfare of the church within these walls. That is to be our primary concern. Not the politics and the current events of the day, but how we as a church are upholding and glorifying the name of Christ, how we are bearing witness to his lordship and to his kingship and to his reign that he currently reigns with at the right hand of God the Father even now as we speak. So that when Christ comes again in his triumphal entry, not on a donkey, but on the clouds of heaven, he will reckon us as those who are living and not dead, as wheat and not chaff. We are to learn from the mistakes of the Jews of the first century as the church today who has been given the right and the privilege to uphold the name of Christ and to proclaim him faithfully. And we are to make that our chief concern, to hold the leaders accountable, to make sure the body of Christ is holy and prepared for Christ's coming so that he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you that you have sent your son, Jesus Christ, humble and mounted on a donkey that in and through him we see humility in all its glory. And we will soon see as we trek through Mark to its end, humility par excellence at the cross of Christ, at the cross in Calvary. And that through that humility, salvation has been won for us. But, O Lord, might we be humble as your servants now, as your church. Might we not seek to tickle the ears of our culture, tickle the ears of popular thought, but be faithful to your word and seek to uphold the name of Christ and faithful to his calling upon us as our head. 
And might we seek to serve him in all that we do and be prepared and ready for that day when he comes to bring us home to that heavenly kingdom that he has won for us in his shed blood. Bless us now, we pray, as we close off this morning of worship and fill our hearts with the glory of our humble king, that we might serve him in humility and seek to uphold his name in all that we do. Do this, we ask, for we ask it in the strong name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Would you please rise for our closing hymn, Immortal Invisible.